Well, good afternoon. Welcome to the Charles Perkins Centre and to our discussion today, which is part of the Food at Sydney seminar series entitled Smallholder Agriculture and the Future of Global Food Security and Nutrition. We're delighted to have such a big group interested in this topic and uh, as has happened for a number of our seminars, it's very well attended, which shows that everybody cares very much about these very important issues. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge, uh, make an acknowledgement to the custodians of this land. I'd like to pay respect to the traditional owners of the Cadigal Nation, sorry, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and uh, like to say that we are paying our respect by continuing a tradition of learning and teaching and sharing ideas through participating in these seminars. There are a couple of people I'd like to thank very much also for their role in organising the seminars. One of them is Meredith Hall, who is the Sydney Ideas representative, and two very important people at the Sydney Environment Institute, Michelle St Anne and Elizabeth MacArthur. So thank you very much for all your help putting these together. There are two other people who I'd like to thank, who are uh, prematurely perhaps, they're going to be our speakers today. The first is Robin Alders of the University of Sydney, who I'll introduce in full in a moment. And the second is Fife Strand from Oxfam. And um, I will introduce Fife later as she is the second speaker. But our first speaker, as I mentioned on this very important topic today, is Robin Alders, who is an Associate Professor with the Faculty of Veterinary Science and the Charles Perkins Centre within the university here. She's also the, a director of the Kaima Foundation. Over the past 20 years, she's worked closely with smallholder farmers in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia in her capacity as a veterinarian researcher and fellow colleague with an emphasis on the development of sustainable infectious disease control in animals in rural areas in support of food security and poverty alleviation. In January 2011, she was made an Officer of the Order of Australia for Distinguished Service to Veterinary Science as a researcher and educator and to the maintenance of food security in developing countries through livestock management and disease control programs. Each speaker is going to speak 15 to 20 minutes, so please save your questions for Robin until Fife has also spoken. So now I'd like to hand over to Robin. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Elena, and thank you all for coming here at 5pm on a Thursday. It is greatly appreciated. Um, 15 to 20 minutes, I am going to do my best, and it means that I may speak a little quickly, and I apologise, but if something is not clear, please come up to me afterwards or ask a question at the end. Firstly, I simply want to acknowledge the great team of people that I've worked with over the years. What I present is going to be uh, shared and joint learning. As we get started, to just think a little bit about what we mean by smallholder agriculture. For those of you who are here, it suggests that you probably have an interest in it and it's probably not new to you, but it does have an agreed definition, but that definition tends to change from country to country, even within country. And I would even suggest that there are some folk in Australia that would qualify as smallholder farmers under Australian conditions. Food and nutrition security is also in our title, so I thought it was really important that we have an understanding of this. 
In the, up until the fairly recent past, we've generally spoken about food security and it's only recently that nutrition has been added to this definition and it's an increasing understand, understanding that we produce food for our own nutrition, for no other reason or in terms of um, why it is so important. So this is the most recent definition that we'll, I'll just read to you. So food and nutrition security is when all people at all times have access, have physical, social and economic access to food which is consumed in sufficient quantity and quality to meet their dietary needs and food preferences and is supported by an environment of adequate sanitation, health services and care, allowing for a healthy and active life. So you can see that many different disciplines have had a hand in that extremely long sentence, but it does cover some really key issues. In terms of food security, it's recognised that there are four key areas or pillars that relate to food availability, to physical and economic access, to stability of supply and to food utilisation. Also very complex, many disciplines working across this here at the university and globally. Uh, in terms of this particular presentation, I'm going to focus on the, on the nutrient part of the food because if we produce food that's not nutritious, we're not going to achieve our ends. Uh, and also for many of you this won't be news, but for those of you who have not had the good fortune of travelling widely, just to remind us of this very unequal world in which we live, um, I've listed four specific criteria there, but uh, then looking at four different countries as well. Um, we will see that in terms of um, gross national income per day, there's a huge disparity there, and also in terms of what it means in terms of health. And this specifically also relates to food security. Also, just a quick chat about malnutrition. Those of us who have worked in international development have been using the term malnutrition for many years, and we normally mean by malnutrition... We think of people who are underweight, undernourished. But in fact, um, the full definition or the proper de definition combines both undernutrition and overnutrition. So malnutrition can be either. And for those of you who speak Romance languages, you'll know that mal is actually the term for bad. So malnutrition speaks about bad nutrition and it can be either over or under. So in some um, countries, you can have both undernourished people and obese people, meaning that there's something just not quite right with the way we're approaching our food system at the moment. But good nutrition does really require good food, good care and good health. Looking at undernutrition, for the public health uh, nutritionists that we have the pleasure of working with, they define uh, undernutrition depending on whether it's acute or chronic. But what we know is that uh, from their perspective, stunting, which is low height for age, is an indicator of chronic undernutrition. And it's not just about the protein that we sometimes think about, it's also about the lack of key nutrients. And we need to think about where do we go to get those nutrients in the food that people may eat in Zambia, but also here in Australia. How are we getting our key micronutrients. Are we all taking our vitamin and mineral tablets or are we actually eating food that enables us to have a good diet? 
Some of you will have seen this presentation before, so I'll ask you not to show how bright you are by answering my question. So, stunting rates in Tanzania for children under five. Give me a percentage figure for what you think the national average might be for stunting in children. 40. Yes, absolutely. Four out of ten children. Uh, in Zambia, are we going up or down? Yes, sadly. Timor-Leste, up or down? Yes. So our neighbours to our nearest country, half of all of their children are stunted and that's not good news um, because it has lifelong consequences for them. When we also talk about stunting, those national levels, it doesn't reflect what's happening at the country level. So here in Zambia you can see that... Uh, we have a whole range of different percentages there, varying by province. The one I want to draw your attention to here is Central Province, where 53% of children are malnourished, and yet it's an extremely high maize-producing province. Our agronomists and our plant folk are deeply distressed when they see this because they thought they were doing well by producing lots of maize. But it seems that maize on its own is not enough for a good diet. What's really important if we're looking at stunting is we have a window of opportunity between conception to two years of life. So that's called the 1,000 days. So getting nutrition right for that period anywhere in the world is really critically important. So it's about having access to food. It's about having women and the, the support group in which the woman lives understanding what is required to be able to have a balanced diet. So... Um, for those of you who aren't women and, and for those of you with partners, you'll know that you can't always say when you're going to fall pregnant. So it's really important for women to be on a good diet because those, that first trimester is critical and if you don't know, um, then um, you can't always make adjustments. Now for me as a, a livestock person or an agriculturalist, um, this for me is really sad information that when reviews have been done recently and they see that all the emphasis and funds that have been in, put into agricultural development, there are very few projects that actually show a direct impact from investment in agriculture to improvement, particularly in childhood nutrition. It's a little bit sad. Stunting does remain high despite increases in food uh, production and the problem there is that once you get to two and if you're stunted, that's you can't turn it around. Your physical development, your mental development, all of that, you will have limited the genetic potential of that person simply by not, them not having nutrition during that period. And even the World Bank's taking an interest because they're finding that uh, national productivity um, is being impacted because of poor nutrition. In terms of uh, what we're seeing for agriculture, the other thing that's interesting is we know that everybody's interested in gender dimensions now and they often just talk about women, but we know gender is both men and women. But in terms of agriculture, women are critically important. They do a lot of the work um, all the way um, across the globe. They're also the repository of knowledge and often it's women that bring that food production into the kitchen and onto the family. So they play a really crucial role in getting that nutritious food to the people who need it most and they do need to be really involved in what's happening. Interestingly enough, although 
that we recognise the importance of women, when we actually look at what's happening, we will find, according to the FAO, that uh, in terms of agricultural extension services, not necessarily reaching women farmers, in terms of agricultural extension agents themselves, once again, mostly men, and in terms of aid to agriculture, women are also not necessarily um, equal beneficiaries. And if it comes to marketing, once again, women are impacted. So we're learning a lot. We still have a little bit of a way to go in how we address some of these issues. But we do know that gender equity goes beyond just being a good idea to treat people equally. There are dramatic benefits. These are just some stats from FAO that's showing that simply by giving women the same access to inputs, you will increase productivity. And in a world where we understand that uh, food production needs to increase without having um, more resources consumed, this is really critically important. And it has an impact on malnourishment or undernourishment because if you have an increasingly malnourished population, the amount of resources required to keep them healthy, to keep them alive and to cope with their lower productivity also puts a strain on our poor old environment that's trying to cope with all these people. Um, for where I've spent much of my last two decades, it's been working in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, and it's like it was when I grew up. On Australia, most farmers were mixed farmers in those days. You had, we had beef, cattle, sheep, we had some chooks, maybe turkeys, horses to do the work. In Australia, the farms are becoming bigger, the range of activities is becoming smaller, so it's more unlikely that you find farmers that can actually feed themselves. They produce a lot of a single or small number of enterprises, they sell that, then they even have to buy their own food back in to have a balanced diet. In uh, sub-Saharan Africa, what we know is that uh, in terms of what I do, which is I'm a vet, so I take an interest in their livestock, very few of them actually have cattle. A few more of them will have ruminants and uh, most households have a few village poultry running around. And this is also has a gender dimension in that cattle are often men's business, small ruminants also tend to be men's business and village poultry are women's business. So... I want to give you uh, just some examples of what we're doing um, with the background there of showing the importance of having not just a, a single um, emphasis on crops but also looking at mixed farming. And the poultry dimension also involves working with eggs. It's a remarkable source, fantastic source of a whole range of nutrients that are usually sterile, they're easy and quick to cook, easy to store, and they provide a very nutritious and nutritionally dense source of food that can make a big difference, particularly in the diet of children with their small stomach sizes. One of our projects that has funding from ACR is working with assets under the control of women, so that's family poultry, small grains, indigenous vegetables, to see if we can have a direct impact on uh, childhood undernutrition. Uh, we're using gender-sensitive methodologies by working with women and there's plenty of data there that indicates if you do that, you're much more likely to have an impact on education levels, nutritional levels within the household. I mentioned the small grains and Robin McConkie, is she here yet? No, but you'll get to meet Robin for those of you who stay on for the event afterwards. She's looking after the crop side of this work. 
Small grains like millet and sorghum are much more likely to be under the control of women. They're more nutritional. They've had less selection pressure, so you have a greater, greater range of nutrients, whereas maize is often men's business and it tends to be commercialised, so it's sold and, and lost uh, to the household. One of the problems with cereals is aflatoxins due to poor storage um, and sometimes uh, variety predispositions. These are all really important issues that are being addressed globally but also through our project. We're also doing some collaborative work in Timor, um, focusing once again with poultry but building that link with our human health colleagues to ensure that we have a framework to enable increased poultry production to translate into increased consumption within the household. Uh, we also really look for economic and um, environmental sustainability. The work that we do with poultry, setting up poultry health programs, are done on a cost recovery basis using service delivery at the village level so that those people receive an income for that work. I want to talk just a little bit about, I mentioned at the beginning that smallholder farmers could be considered to play a role here in Australia. There's a term that I think some of you will know, uh, family farming. It still happens here in Australia. There's a few people who are hanging on. It's a farm that's owned and operated by a family. It tends to pass from one generation to another. It is the basic unit that's really supported most of our societies throughout our existence. Without the farm, none of us could enjoy our life here in the city because we'd have not much to eat at all. In terms of family farming, I find it amazing. It is the international year of family farming and yet it has no profile here in Australia. The um, new Director-General for uh, the FAO has recently called for a shift to an increase in agroecological farming, sustainable farming, family farming. And the reason that family farming is so important is really that uh, family farmers have a connection with their land they are interested in preserving that land for future generations. They're not there just to make a profit and then to move on and make a profit somewhere else once they've uh, extracted the nutrients from that soil. So they have uh, an important role in stewardship and um, taking care not only of the land but of ecosystem services. It's a term that once again also doesn't have a lot of profile here in Australia but I can assure you that the water that you drink here in Sydney, much of it, the headwaters are off farms and those farms are farmed and have to follow certain regulations to ensure that water of a certain quality enters the waterways and for providing that service to you here in Sydney, how much are the farmers paid? Nothing. Not one cent, exactly. I think we might have a problem. So the other thing that you see there, the final point, is that farmers' <coughs> ages are increasing here in Australia. Why would you... Um, follow on into your parents' footsteps if you know your hourly wage is appalling um, and it's so much easier to go to a city. So these are really crucial issues but I have used this little banner here that's off the Youth Food Movement website. They're a great uh, group of young Australians who give us heart that they do understand what's really important for um, supporting our life as we know it. So thank you. So thank you, Robin. I'd now like to introduce Fife Strawn from Oxfam. 
Fife is the Food Justice Program Coordinator at Oxfam Australia, a role that focuses on supporting Oxfam country teams in their public engagement work on food and livelihoods and facilitating communication across Oxfam Australia on food justice issues, including the GROW campaign, which some of you might have heard of. Oxfam's GROW campaign focuses on the drivers of injustices in the global food system, including the greater need for greater national and international recognition of the important role of small-scale producers in agriculture. Prior to working at Oxfam, Fife worked in Ghana for a human rights advocacy organisation and in Australia as a policy officer in the state and federal governments. So please join me in welcoming Fife to the stage. Um, thanks very much, Alana, and thanks a lot um, to Sydney University for giving me the opportunity to speak. Um, my name's Fife Strawn. I work at Oxfam Australia as the Food Justice Program Coordinator. Um, I'll start by introducing Oxfam for those of you who aren't familiar with our work. Oxfam is a secular, not-for-profit aid organisation. We work through partner organisations in 29—sorry, um, local partner organisations across 29 countries in South Asia, East Asia, Southern Africa, and the Pacific, and Indigenous Australia. Um, Oxfam's vision is of a just world without poverty. So we're working towards a world where people can influence decisions which affect their lives, enjoy their rights, and assume their responsibilities as citizens of the world. And the purpose of Oxfam is to create lasting solutions to poverty. And to achieve this, we support a number of rights-based sustainable development programs, public education, fair trade, campaigns, advocacy, and humanitarian assistance in disasters and conflicts. So Alana mentioned Oxfam's Grow campaign. I'll just briefly outline what the campaign's about. We launched it in 2011, and essentially the Grow campaign um, is aimed at its, its vision is of a world where everyone everywhere has enough to eat, which is fairly ambitious, um, but it's the, it's the vision that's at the heart of the campaign. The campaign operates in Australia, but also in 50 countries around the world, and it aims to tackle food insecurity from a number of angles at the same time. So the campaign really asks the question, what are some of the underlying causes and drivers of food insecurity, looking at issues like um, small-scale food production and, and the importance of that, looking at the importance of land, looking at pressures from our changing climate and really focusing on what we can do and what governments can do and what businesses can do to try to build a better food future for everyone. So the first question that really needs to be asked in looking at the issue, at any issue of food insecurity is, is who are the hungry people in the world? And What's often surprising um, to hear is that 80% of people in the world who are food insecure are in some way associated with or involved with food production. So currently the Food and Agriculture Organisation estimates that there are 805 million people around the world who are food insecure. So that's around one in nine people. The numbers recently changed, so you may have seen one in eight around, but recently the number, there was a small decline in the number of food insecure people around the world. But at the same time, the world currently produces sufficient food to meet the dietary needs of everyone in the world. So the issue is not that there's not enough food, the issue is that, that hungry people can't access it, which is what makes it surprising when you learn that 80% of the people who are currently food insecure are involved in food production, either as small-scale food producers, fisher folk, 
forest foragers or landless agricultural labourers. And the remaining 20% of food insecure people are often people living in shanty towns on the periphery of large urban centres in developing countries. So this big question is, if up to 80% of the people in the world are involved in some way in communities producing food, what's going wrong? And there's a range of factors, um, and these include that small farmers are often at heightened risk of shocks, so growing food in a changing climate places increased stresses on farmers who don't have a lot of risk margins built into their businesses to cope with these shocks. Destruction of one harvest through a natural disaster can lead people to be in a position where they, they don't have food to eat for a long period of time or don't have a source of income that they desperately need. Small farmers can also have difficulty accessing markets and getting a fair price in markets. So these difficulties can be purely physical for very remote communities where it's difficult to physically get to the nearest market. And these can also be economic or social barriers that mean that small farmers are really disadvantaged or forced to rely on middlemen and not able to um, make a lot of money in those markets. Small farmers are often also left behind by investment. So, I mean, generally agriculture's share of government expenditure has declined in most regions since the 1980s and smallholders often fail to benefit from this investment even where it's available. In fact, um, smallholders' own personal investments in their farms are often the greatest investment that they ever receive. So the money that they, they put from their own profits back into their farms is often the most investment those farms ever see. And in some countries, the major source of direct agricultural investment in those countries is actually the money that smallholders put into their own businesses from their own pockets. And small farmers are often isolated, so agricultural research and extension services are often not delivered to farmers who are most in need of them or skip over the very, very poorest farmers in remote areas, ethnic minority communities. As Robin pointed out, women are often also disadvantaged in the extent to which they both are agricultural extension workers and the extent to which they can access agricultural extension services. And the, another huge issue and the main issue that I'd like to focus on is, is really about access to land. So globally, the amount of arable land available per capita is in decline, and this hasn't gone unnoticed by investors. When I was preparing this talk, I was looking for a particular infographic that Oxfam produced that was talking about decline in um, arable land per capita and lazily typed it into Google Images. And all of the images that came up for this graph that I was looking for were from investment companies associated with tags saying, you know, look at the increasing value of land. What a great opportunity to invest in this area. And this is, this is a, a, you know, great example of the fact that this increase, as, that as land rises in value, the risk that smallholders are going to be forced off their land to make way for bigger investors rises. And we see this happening all over the global south. So, and north, that's true. And, yes. Um, since 2000, nearly 1,000 large-scale land deals covering 37 million hectares globally have been recorded. So 37 million hectares is a land area about the size of the United Kingdom plus Greece. Um, according to the Land Matrix, which is an international independent database that tracks large-scale land acquisitions, Southeast Asia is the leading region in the world for large-scale land acquisitions, with Indonesia and Papua New Guinea the top two countries in the world for land acquisitions. 
And as the need for agricultural commodities, particularly commodities like palm oil, soy and sugar rises, um, it's one of the most significant drivers of the continued scale and speed of land acquisition around the world. So I don't know if anyone in this room is thinking it, but I'd, I'd imagine there might be some people in this room thinking, well, why not let it happen? You've obviously pointed out some of, the some of the difficulties that small farmers face, some of the things that make it really tough to be a smallholder farmer, and pointed out that there's a huge trend towards large-scale land acquisitions and the value of these, um, this arable land is rising. But there's a lot of evidence that also points to the benefits of small-scale agriculture. And Robin has pointed to some of these benefits already in her talk in terms of stewardship of the land, um, some of the potential environmental benefits associated with um, agroecological approaches that are often adopted by small farmers. Um, there's also benefits in terms of um, job creation for the poor and ensuring sustainable economic growth. Small farms also have the capacity to be extremely productive. There's a myth that small farming is inherently unproductive. The 200 million small farms in China alone produce 20% of the world's food, despite occupying only about 10% of the world's agricultural land. And investment in small-scale farming is also a good idea from a market perspective. It can stimulate local markets and it can also, quite critically, address food access constraints for people who are themselves living in poverty. Um, investment in women small-scale farmers is found to be particularly effective and I think Robin also shared the statistic um, from the Food and Agriculture Organisation talking about what can be achieved if women farmers just received the same amount of support as men farmers. And, but putting that issue to one side, the very fact that there is already in the world enough food to feed everyone but people are going hungry tells us that this is not... Food insecurity is not just an issue of production and aggregate food production in the world. It's about ensuring that the people who are hungry are able to access the food that they need. So I'm just going to move to discuss a recent piece of research that Oxfam was involved in, which had a look specifically at this issue of land and the importance of smallholder access to land for resilience and food security. Oxfam recently partnered with researchers from RMIT, Deakin and the University of the South Pacific to undertake a research project in the Solomon Islands in Vanuatu looking at the impact of food, fuel and economic crises on households in both countries. And the study found that the majority of households they talked to had experienced food and fuel crises following the global financial crisis and it found almost 90% of the households had experienced a, a fuel price shock sorry, a food price shock, and 70% had experienced a, a fuel price shock. A number of households, more than 50%, had also experienced um, natural disaster-related shocks in that time. Even rural households that grow a lot of their food were really vulnerable to rises in the price of food because smallholders often, despite growing a lot of the food that they eat, need to supplement that food with food that they buy from local markets, so they're also vulnerable to shifts in global food prices. But one of the most interesting findings from this study was that it asked people to talk a bit about what they do. So it said you've, you've had a situation where fuel goes up or food goes up, leaving you with less money in your pocket. What do you do to cope with those kind of shocks? And the results really found that the access to natural resources was a critical element for a lot of communities. Um, people told researchers about the fact that 
when they were in a situation where the price of food went up, they turned to the garden or to the reef for, as a source of food, but also as a source of income, sourcing more fish or shells, things to sell in local markets to make a little bit of extra money. The burden was also, it did find, disproportionately placed on women. So it was often women who continued to do their existing role in the household and community, but also took on this extra role of trying to grow more in the garden or source more food from the reef. But this example really showed, um, sorry, the study also found that squatter communities living in urban areas were worse off in a crisis than those living in rural areas, with the exception of those living in extremely remote rural areas. But most of the people surveyed in this study um, found that, uh, most, sorry, most of the people surveyed in this study living in rural areas where they had access to cities were much better off than people living in urban areas because when things got tough they were able to turn to the land and access natural resources, which was an incredibly important source of resilience. So in essence, in Oxfam's work, we've really seen some of the benefits that can come from small-scale agriculture and we've also seen some of the looming threats posed to small-scale agriculture in terms of declining investments, land acquisition trends and climate change. So for this reason, we really strongly believe that it's important to continue to invest in small-scale agriculture and the support that small-scale producers need to ensure food security and inclusive economic growth that benefits the poorest in society. We think it's important that governments, including our own governments, invest in, um, in this through the aid program and through national government expenditures in developing countries. And it's also critical that there are measures to promote access to land and natural resources it's also critical that there are measures to help communities build resilience in a changing climate and adapt to extreme weather so that they can undertake new agricultural practices when a changing climate means they have to change the way that they grow food. And there's also an important role for the private sector here. And as we've said, investment is needed, but it's also important that the role of the private sector is supportive for small-scale producers and doesn't involve funding or supporting large-scale land acquisitions that remove smallholders from the land that they rely on for food, but also for resilience. So just a little plug on what you can do if you're sitting here in the audience thinking, I'd like to do something about this issue. A um, couple of things. We're currently running a, a program called Eat Local, Feed Global, and it's on next week. Um, and there's some flyers outside about it, but we're encouraging people to get together, share a meal, talk about some of these issues in terms of the global food system um, and how best to, to support smallholders. The, um, the campaign is running from the 14th to the 21st of October, and if you're interested in it, there's flyers at the door. And the other thing that I just wanted to mention is that we have a, another campaign at the moment looking at the other issue at land and the importance of access to land and the issue of large-scale land acquisitions and specifically the involvement of Australia's big four banks in funding large-scale land acquisitions that have had negative impacts for communities in a number of countries. So the link's just up there if anyone's interested to find out more about that specific issue as well. Well, thank you so much, Fife and Robin, for two very inspiring, quite complimentary and challenging presentations.